0: Marty Rustum presents a new horror classic, Eden Alive. Hello? Created by Toby Hooper, maker of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Ah. Mel Ferrer, Carolyn Jones, Stuart Whitman, Who's there? Neville Brand. The most terrifying 90 minutes you ever spent in a theater, Eaten Alive, a VIP picture rated R.
1: Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode three of Hanging with Toby Hooper. I am one of your Hanging with Toby Hooper co-hosts, Patrick Bromley, joined, as always, by my Hanging with Toby Hooper co-host, Heather Wixson. Hi, Heather.
2: Hello. I I was going to use the uh, the opening saying from the movie to greet you with, <laughs> but, like, it felt weird. And now it feels even weirder. And I have <laughs> weird feelings about this movie, Patrick. <sighs>
1: For those of you who've never seen Eaten Alive... AKA Death Trap, AKA Horror Hotel, AKA Starlight Slaughter. Uh, the opening line of the movie is My name's Buck and I'm raring to fuck. Delivered by Robert Englund. No, uh, no uh,
2: less. Yes. And, and then, then borrowed also...
1: by Quentin Tarantino for Kill Bill.
2: Wait, Quentin Tarantino borrowed something from another movie? I'm shocked.
1: <laughs> from a Toby Hooper movie, no less.
2: That's okay. That's okay. Yeah, it is. I like when. Quentin can borrow whatever he wants. He's Quentin. Um, but yeah, I like that the movie was so nice. They named it Price.
1: Four times. Yeah. yeah. This is from that period where if a movie didn't perform well, they just you know released it in a different territory with a different title or waited six months and re-released it with a different title. And so this movie had no fewer than four titles, but it is of course now widely known as eaten alive, not to be confused with the Umberto Lenzi cannibal movie of the same name, which got this movie uh, on the Video Nasties list. Because yeah, it's funny because they messed for up for years. <laughs>
2: yeah, for years. Well, for years, I kept thinking like that this was the same. I was like, wait, Toby did like. I was like, wait, am I getting like things confused? Because this is my first time watching it, right? Um, and I've never seen the Lenzi movie. Um, just because it's gonna be, it, I know, I know it's gonna be too much for me, and that's cool. <laughs> Um, there's other people out there who will love it and enjoy it. And that's cool. Um, but so like in my head, like I was like, wait, Robert Englund did a movie with like, 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 it just was like it in for so long and probably until like the last like 12 years, like it just, I had these two movies in my head. Cause I remember the artwork Mm -hmm. from the Lindsay movie being in the video store. I don't really remember Toby's movie being in the video store.
1: So, it might have been under me, the was, title "Starlight Slaughter."
2: Okay, I don't even remember that to be honest. I'd love to see. <laughs> I I, I should have. I really wanted to to look up like the VHS covers to see if like the alternates and what they look like. Yeah, because I don't remember this at all. Like in my video stores.
1: Every year at Flashback, I see the same one sheet for Starlight Slaughter. And every year I'm like, do I buy that? I already have an a Alive poster up. There's really no room for the Starlight Slaughter poster. But it's pretty cool.
2: So you haven't bought it? That's crazy. You should buy that. I haven't. But, well, where am I going to put it? I don't have any room for it. Build an extension on your house or something. I don't know. Hey,
1: you know what? That didn't occur to me. But I think you're on to something.
2: I mean, you know, just for for wall space alone. (laughs) Just create create the Toby Hooper annex.
1: Yeah, that's already my office kind of. But um, All right, here's the plot summary from IMDb, which is not great. Uh, It's contributed by someone named Ed Sutton. Judd runs the Starlight Hotel out in some sort of swampy place and is unfortunately a few slices short of a loaf. He has a crocodile conveniently placed on the other side of the hotel's front porch railing. The croc will eat just about anything as the hapless guests of the hotel soon find out. A reformed hooker, an unlucky family, and the father and sister of the hooker all suffer various rates of attrition as Judd tries to implement damage control. There's a lot to unpack there, but I'm not going to. I just want to say that I like the expression, some sort of swampy place.
2: Yeah, I mean, to be really honest, like, Is this Florida or is this Louisiana? I'm guessing Florida.
1: I think it's Florida.
2: But then also there is another description on IMDb that says it's in rural East Texas.
1: Oh, so does Wikipedia, actually. So So one of those Texas swamps.
2: Yeah, I'm like, I... I mean, I'm not super duper familiar with the intricacies of all of Texas, but I have driven from Florida to California Mm
0: -hmm. and
2: made my way through a lot of part of Texas that like, I don't typically take if I'm driving from SoCal to Austin. Mm -hmm. I don't remember swamps, but I could, I mean, I guess maybe like towards the Arkansas ness of it. Like, I don't know, man.
1: It's It's not, it's it's not so much a swamp as it is some sort of swampy place.
2: That's true. I mean, the, to not be, you know, to, to lose the specificity is, I think, is, is helpful. Because <laughs> I also think, too, that adds a little bit of the unsettlingness of the movie because you can't really pinpoint it. Sure. So it feels like this weird fever dream of a place that you just, you don't, you can't find it on a map, but you don't want to ever end up there, <laughs> if that makes sense.
1: Well, I'm super excited to hear your thoughts on this because this was your first viewing of Eaten Alive.
2: It was. I, it was a lot to digest, if you will. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I liked it, but I don't know that it's going to be like amongst my favorite of, of Toby's works, but like, there's a lot to really appreciate, but it is, it's, it's such an interesting companion piece to Texas Chainsaw because like, I was like, well, you can't possibly like, as a director, come up with another way to like, totally like screw with audiences more than you did with Texas Chainsaw. And by like creating this like really weird, unsettling, like often surrealistic sort of feel like mm-hmm. experience.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and then along comes Eatin' Alive. <laughs> and I don't know, I, you know, whatever Toby was on during this one, I mean, God bless him. he He leaned into it. And that's why like for me like it's such a like weirdly unsettling thing to like see cuz like I guess because now that I'm so familiar with Texas Chainsaw like I I have my expectations. This was just like so in your face and it's like so many legends and like it, it was it was a lot of movie but I'm I'm good with that. Like I said like I'm curious to see how it's going to shake out in the end. It'll definitely be in my top 10. Okay. But I don't know if I don't know if it's a top five.
1: When but I but it's a the, really
2: fascinating thing to like pull apart that you know makes any kind of sense.
1: When I did the um Toby Hooper draft a couple of years ago, last year for screen drafts, uh, I was drafting with El Elric Kane and we were doing the top seven and I got vetoed a couple of times because he wanted Eden Alive in the top seven so bad. Um, Which I think is interesting. You know, I read some of the reviews of the movie and almost all of them kind of ding the movie for not being Texas Chainsaw. And at the time. Which is dumb. Well, at the time I could kind of understand it, you know. So the movie comes out in 1976, just a couple of years after Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And critics only have really, you know, because nobody's really looking at or talking about eggshells. So they just have the one movie to sort of compare to. And it's such a movie. I mean, it's this landmark of American horror, and it's one of the best horror movies ever made. And it's so upsetting and unsettling and scary. And so people are still reacting to Texas Chainsaw Massacre in the way that they're processing eaten alive. But a lot of the writing that I was reading was like modern day writing stuff written after toby's passing stuff written uh on the movie's like 30th anniversary and so many of these writers are still just saying like well the nicest ones are saying it's not texas chainsaw massacre the the meanest ones are declaring it like fully incompetent
2: yeah that i don't buy um I don't I don't think this is an incompetent picture by any means because frankly like what they were able to achieve like because for example like you know I actually had thought that this was shot somewhere in Texas because it's Toby and like you know he found like a real crazy weird dilapidated place to like center this whole story around turns out no he was in Raleigh Studios here in LA uh and all of this is on a soundstage and it has does not have that kind of feeling whatsoever for, and for me one to pull that kind of veil back and make me you know make me believe in something that isn't true like okay then you've already done something as a director right um i i just i don't understand i mean first of all like the one thing that always bothers me is that people are so always so quick to give the you know give films or filmmakers their flowers once they're gone once a movie's been out for 10 or 20 or 30 years um and I don't know if it comes from like you kind of have to give yourself a little distance from movies to really appreciate them. Um but like I just don't understand why for a director like you would just spend your time like comparing everything to Texas Chainsaw. Like <laughs> even this day. Like back then it makes sense. The the the, the field of vision is more narrow. Yeah, but he had like two these days, movies, ostensibly. Yeah. But now this, at at this point when, you know, we've already had an entire filmography of Toby Hooper, like examine this movie within, like, I guess basically what we're doing, like within the, within the the scope of his entire filmography and who he was as a storyteller and the things that he was trying to, you know, explore, you know, while entertaining people. Um, And yeah, like this is, it's funny, like, a movie like Texas Chainsaw was a lot of happy accidents, you know, if we're being totally honest. Mm -hmm. Because that, you know, with the the things that that crew and that cast and Toby and went through and, like, had to, you know, figure out how to make and, like, just come together and, like, do, like, really crazy um, conditions. Like, that movie is a miracle. We talked about that. Yeah. So this is, like, he's got, like, he's got a budget. He's got a location that's, like, contained. He doesn't have to worry about, like, people passing out because it's 115 degrees and, (laughs) you know, and people's faces melting to the asphalt because they fell too hard. And, you know, and to me, like, I actually think this is almost, which is weird to say, because it is such a, it is like chaos in this movie, but yet it feels way more calculated. And I don't know if that's just me. I don't know if I'm not seeing it right, but I actually think there's a deliberate deliberation, to how he handles the madness in this movie, um, that I don't think we see in Texas Chainsaw. Like, I think there is a real progression to him as a filmmaker from Eggshells to to Texas Chainsaw to Eaten Alive. Like, is it messy? Sure, but like, I don't need Toby Hooper to play it safe just to make me feel better. I mm-hmm. like that this movie. Like, literally five minutes in, and I'm just like, again, sound mix, crazy characters. You know. And mm-hmm. confrontational dialogue i was like oh my god what are we doing but that's good that is good
1: i think um you know again a lot of the reaction of the movie it's a it's a weird chicken egg debate because did the reception of eaten alive contribute to the idea that toby hooper is a bad filmmaker or did the sort of accepted wives tale that Toby Hooper is a bad filmmaker allow bad movie writers to write pieces about how eaten alive is incompetent and it doesn't matter either way. I obviously don't agree with them. And I I think eaten alive is actually a pretty great horror movie for a lot of reasons. And one of the main reasons that I love eaten alive is because for me, it's, it's a little bit more of an indication of where Toby Hooper was interested in going for the rest of his career. I mean, you talked kind of about the 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 intentionality of it versus Texas Chainsaw, which is a little bit capturing some of the insanity that they were living through, whereas here it's a more manufactured insanity. And I think there's some absolute truth to that because – Eaten Alive is so much about the artifice of it all. You know, Toby Hooper had gone and made a movie on location. Um, He had very little control over what was happening to them at the heat and the shooting locations. And he just had had a challenging time making that movie, obviously, as we documented on our last episode. And so for Eaten Alive, he was like, well, let me see if I can go the other direction and make a movie that's completely contained and very artificial so that the set feels like a set, so that the backlot feels like a backlot. It feels almost like um like a theatrical in a way, like a theater production, even down to like the bad wigs that the characters are wearing. Yes. But then that Sorry. no, but then that is a little bit at odds with some of that there's still a little bit of that Texas chainsaw energy, particularly in the Neville brand performance, where it's like this can't be contained. This cannot be deliberate or calculated because Neville Brand is a legitimate madman, and he's drunk all the time in the making of this movie. And he's going to do what he's going to do, and you have to try to capture it. So there's a little bit of that old Texas Chainsaw insanity within this very sort of confined, constrained set of circumstances.
2: Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned sort of the theatricalness of it, because I did feel like... You could totally do this as like a stage play. I actually kind of want to see Eat Alive, the musical now, because that
1: would be fun. Does Um, the crocodile get to sing, I guess is the question.
2: Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. In the opening Is it like Croc's Lament or
1: is it like an (laughs) upbeat? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, he's.
2: I mean, the, cro- the crocodile, you know, slash alligator, because they're like they talk about like they, you know, it's like an alligator, but it could be a crocodile from South Africa right, right, right. or something like that. Um, yeah, totally. They, that animal's just existing. Like they can't help that lunch keeps falling into the water. Like <laughs> what do they do, they're not gonna eat. Of course, they're gonna eat. They're they're hungry. Um, but yeah, like so it's funny because like when I was watching it, you know, like I said, it really made me uncomfortable. And like I don't know why because it's it's not similar in its approach or its tone or anything like that but for me watching this actually gave me reminded me of my reaction the first time i watched dogville which is a very theatrically staged right right, film like to the point where they have like the tape on the floors and stuff like that Mm -hmm. and it was i was like why would i think of like of all the movies i was like but that was like the experience that i had and i think that there is something really genius about the way but that toby plays because like it's, like, there's there's stuff happening in, like, rooms and, like, it, characters are, like, it, it just, it really lent itself to, like, this, like, sense of, like, claustrophobia. Because, like, even, in like, when you're outside of the hotel, that, like, oppressive fog, like, really just closes you in. Yeah. And, like, yeah, it feels really intimate. Which, again, lends itself to sort of that theatrical feeling.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, but, yeah, I think when we are done with this, we need to write Eatin' Alive the musical. <laughs> I, I think like we it. need to make that happen. Somebody's going to steal this idea and I'm going to be pissed. <laughs> I will find you if you're listening and you do this. We will find you. We will hunt you down mm. and feed you to our crocodile.
1: Well, it comes from a difficult <clears throat> period in Toby's career because it starts an unfortunate trend where he... Uh, quits movies basically because
2: yeah i quits... didn't realize
1: that yeah he quits this movie before post production is finished he quits during post production over a disagreement with the producers so the movie that we're getting isn't even totally toby's movie because he was not necessarily involved in the final edit of the film then he quits the dark then he quits venom um and salem's lot kind of falls in between there, it's not really until kind of the one two punch of Salem's Lawn Poltergeist that his career sort of writes itself. Um, but it also starts a long standing working relationship with Robert England, uh, William Finley, he gets his start with on this movie. Not that he works with William Finley too many times, not like De Palma did, but he does bring William Finley back for the fucking Marquis de Sade movie, the name of which I can't remember Night Terrors um which Robert Englund comes back for as well. So there are like he's starting to and Marilyn Burns returning from Texas Chainsaw to be in this movie. He's sort of starting to build the Toby Hooper Toby Hooper Toby Hooper company <laughs> of stock players.
2: Yeah. Um oh shit, I was going to say something and I totally just lost the thought. No, that's okay.
1: Was it about him quitting the movie?
2: Yeah. Well, it's just interesting because, like, you know, I, it's not something that a lot of directors do, but it's funny because, like, I just realized, and I didn't know this, and it's funny because I know him, I didn't realize Tom Holland quit Child's Play before it was done.
1: Oh, I don't think I did either.
2: Yeah, Uh, which is really funny because, like, I did, like, these, like, big interview with him, like, uh, when it was, like, the 25th anniversary of Child's Play Like never talked about any of that. And then as I was digging around, he got into a disagreement with David Kirshner about how the movie should be paced. He had Chucky in a way, way more. There's a lot more extra scenes. The opening was different. And Kirshner was like, no, we're not doing that. We're going to, you know, it should be like Jaws. You should only see Chucky here or there. And Tom walked. Hmm. And you never hear it. Like I've never heard that until like recently
1: no I never even heard from that the either. man
2: himself yeah right even from the man himself so like
1: well it went was, on to be a big hit I don't think he's gonna say like that I'm not fully responsible for that you know he's gonna take now, the now he's like,
2: it. yeah now he's like oh no they made the right decisions and I fully support them and <laughs> exactly. blah 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 um but yeah so it's interesting because they're kind of from the, like the same era, era of of talent because like at this point like I think Tom is writing and acting Mm-hmm. you know in the 70s so he's mm-hmm. not like directing yet but like he's he's in the mix um so it's just interesting that like sort of this gener that generation of like filmmakers they were okay with just walking away from a movie like could mm-hmm. you Im- I-, I couldn't imagine these days like where a director would just in post walk away from a movie like does that happen anymore
1: uh i mean we hear about directors getting fired uh justin lynn walked off a of fast X like a few days into production
2: yeah a little different but not though, during you know post I
1: mean? right yeah yeah he hadn't shot an entire movie and then said like i can't do this anymore
2: yeah i mean i would anybody at that point like with the fast movies like if they <laughs> walked off at the end i'd be like i get it it's
1: yeah fine. right for sure I'm
2: like was it the point where the kids like flying through the air to get from car to car yeah okay i get it so not that I, I, it's look, it's super ridiculous, but I, I really had fun with fact. I liked it more than nine simply because Momoa steals the entire movie. And finally Vin Diesel, like we're not hinging on his like, Oh, family. Like, you know what I mean? Like he's, you know, he's, he's Batman and he's finally got his Joker. Like that's cool.
1: Do you think as a result of the reaction to Jason Momoa's performance, which is largely in step with what you're saying. A lot of people were like, Momoa saves the movie, Momoa steals the movie, it's worth seeing just for Momoa. Will Vin Diesel insists that his character be like cut back in the sequel?
2: I don't think he can. I think that's the problem is like I think he's in a he's in a corner. Okay. And that and the thing is, like, if Vin is smart, he'll understand that your hero is only as good as your villain.
0: Mm-hmm. And if
2: you've got a villain like that, then he needs to step it up and you need to give us a reason to give a mm-hmm. shit about Dom. Mm-hmm. and his family um but also i just couldn't believe and i'm sorry if anybody hasn't seen it but i'm just gonna say it. i can't even believe they got the freaking rock for a stinger yeah like so obviously some some beef was was quashed uh quashed there between them yeah and my heart is so happy i feel like it's full circle although can we just say gal gadot with a submarine was the most ridiculous <laughs> like the kids <laughs> flying out of the car was one thing but when she showed up i was like oh i literally yelled at. i was like oh come on mm. um anyway mm. you know it's just, it's, you know, I think the thing is that people forget, like, filmmaking, like, you know, obviously directors go in, they've got a vision, they want to bring it to life, but it is a, it is creativity by like by a, by a committee. Mm-hmm. You know, there are actors involved, there's writers, or you know, there's other creatives that have to come together and see the same vision. And unfortunately, sometimes producers tend to think that they're more creative than they are. <laughs> um, we'll step in and kind of screw with that a little bit. And I like the fact that Toby was a guy who he was not only was he so fiercely independent, you know, as a, as an entity, like as a person, like as this person driven by creativity, Mm -hmm. but that he wasn't, you know, for a good portion of his career, he wasn't willing to compromise. And yeah, like that kind of screwed him over, but also at the same time, like, what would we be saying about him if he had like, compromised right you know
1: that was was a quality that lasted him his entire career because years ago when i did that toby hooper tribute on the one year anniversary of his death which you were so kind to be a part of um i also had jared rivet on the show and jared rivet has worked had worked with toby hooper a number of times at one point they were going to remake white zombie together jared was going to write it and toby was going to direct it And they were having meetings with producers. And Jared told this great story about basically they leave a meeting where the producers are like, we want it to be this, this and this. And Toby walks out of the meeting with Jared and says, you know, Jared, I've got this garden and goes on this long tangent about his garden. And Jared was like wondering where this is going. And it ends basically with Toby saying, I think I'd rather stay home and work on my garden than make the movie that they want us to make. And the movie died because he didn't want to compromise the movie that, you know, I think he was willing to compromise as we'll see with Poltergeist. He's willing to like be collaborative. He's a collaborative filmmaker, but not a compromising filmmaker.
2: Yeah. And I think also to him being collaborative, I think that's like, especially like in something like eaten alive, I think that's really reflected in the cast that he chose Mm -hmm. because like, he's, you know, yeah, he's working with like, Some still up and coming talents, you know, Robert Englund, you know, Marilyn Burns, but he's also working with a lot of freaking legends on this movie, Yeah, you know, between, you know, Neville Brand, Carolyn Jones. um, I think Mel Ferrer pretty much had a pretty good career up until this point as well. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so it's not like he was a guy who thought he was going to get in a bunch of like Hollywood legends and then order them around. Right. Because I think if I'm remembering correctly, I'd, I'd read something about how he kind of let Neville sort of take control of Judd. Like he had like, you know, obviously the script was written and he had ideas, but I think he just kind of let Neville run. run and like, and you mentioned, of course, was kind of drunk all the time. And of you, know, <laughs> you know, influenced some of the performance, but it wasn't like Toby was like, no, you can't do this. Because I mean, I think he trusted people who were as passionate about being creative as he was. And, you know, maybe they had their vices, but you know, we all do. Sure. you know so it's just interesting to me like that everybody sees it one way but i'm like this was re- again really fascinating because like i don't know that it's going to end up being my favorite Toby Hooper but it was a really interesting look into where he was creatively post texas Chainsaw. cuz imagine imagine being this filmmaker who comes out of texas it's not like texas at that point was like this burgeoning hotbed of you know filmmaking you know thankfully over the years that's changed a little bit in Hollywood. it's not sort of just hollywood elitism where like that's the only place you can make movies right um you know and i think i think coming off of something like texas chainsaw which you know i guess i'm guessing that they probably were just happy that the movie got finalized especially with <laughs> all the other things that they had to deal with uh and then it actually got out the theaters and that people saw it but that it became this whole phenomenon before horror movies were becoming a phenomenon this is Mm pre-Halloween like the only movie probably before this that had any sort of like traction the way Texas Chainsaw did was Psycho yeah I mean I know the birds to a degree but like I think Psycho like really it was like that movie and I think Texas Chainsaw became that movie Mm -hmm. in the early 70s so imagine that kind of pressure like you have to follow that up like what the hell do you do you know, and doing it without like any sort of like studio system behind you. Cause mm-hmm. like, yeah, like Spielberg comes along and does jaws, but like, he's kind of set up at universal at that point.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Like it's a little less pressure, you know, he can kind of, yeah. I mean, obviously he wants to do the best work he possibly can, but he doesn't, have, it's like, he has a safety net. Right. Toby's got not like, you know, Toby walked away where Texas chance I would like nothing. Right. But a movie that just basically exploded, you know, in its popularity. Right. So what the heck do you even do with that? Like, I couldn't even imagine trying to navigate that, especially in the filmmaking climate of the 70s. Like, yeah, things were more open. There was a lot more independent stuff going on. The studios didn't quite have a stranglehold on on theaters and things like that the way they do now. But ultimately, like, you got to follow up probably one of the most influential movies you know, horror otherwise of the early 1970s, how the hell do you, you know, deal with that?
1: Right. Well, I, I think, wouldn't, I, I, I think, wouldn't know what to do. I think that's why it's smart <laughs> that he tries to go another way. I think there's a lot about eaten Alive* that tries to be scary in the way that Texas Chainsaw Massacre was scary because I think that's what interests Toby Hooper as a horror director you know, he's talked about how he's only interested in horror that goes for the throat. Um, A lot of his movies are sort of chronicling madness, whether it's a descent into madness or with *Eaten Alive. I mean, we practically start at the point of madness and only get crazier from there because of the Neville Brand character. And so there are There are ways in which I think you can draw a straight line from Texas Chainsaw to Eaten Alive. But I also I think it's really interesting that at least in the construction of it and the making of it, he decides to do something very, very different uh, because I think he knows, you know, like I can't. That particular brand of lightning is not going to strike twice. And I would be foolish to try to top myself in that way. I need to. I need to zig, you know, where people want me to zag. And I know eaten alive is probably destined to remain a curiosity in Toby Hooper's career. It's one of the movies that like only the diehard fans and some more curious horror fans have even seen or heard of. Uh, But I think it's an absolutely fascinating look at like, his own personal reaction to Texas Chainsaw and in predicting the future of where his career would go, because I think he's way more interested, not in the type of horror, because as I said, the way that he approaches horror is similar in both movies and would continue to be similar throughout his career. But in terms of the sort of artificiality of it all, uh, the kind of obvious let's put on a show, letting you know that it's a movie that kind of a thing I think he's way more interested in that than in the kind of cinema verite of Texas Chainsaw
2: no I totally agree and I think it's interesting too that you mentioned like the wigs and stuff because for me so like maybe I don't know if I missed something like you know obviously Roberta Collins was wearing a wig yeah. you know when she's playing Clara in the movie not yeah. that it was a a plot point with her character but I thought it was really. Strange interesting how um marilyn burns's character is wearing a wig and then takes it off and it's like it's a horrible like i mean it's interesting to see her with dark hair but it's like when you you see like her gorgeous hair and you're like why are you doing like was (laughs) Was there
1: there yeah was that like a fashion thing in the 70s that women just wore wigs i have no idea
2: i i i don't know i mean i wasn't a woman in the 70s so i was born in the 70s but (laughs) um So that to me was really fascinating because again, that plays into your idea of like sort of these false facades that the movie puts up where Mm -hmm. you think it's one thing, but it's really something else. Um, Where even like the, the, you know, um, Miss Hattie's house, like it seems like a place where you're like, oh, this is a house of ill repute, blah, blah, blah. But like, Mm -hmm. yet you don't really feel like the girls there are in danger, you know, because yeah, Buck kind of gets like, Shoved off onto two other gals, and she's kind of keeping an eye on him. But like, she does still step in and basically stops what's happening with Clara at the beginning of the movie. Right. Um. Which again, also the opening of the movie just again feels very live theater. Mm-hmm. Um. The way it's staged, the way the, the 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 shot is composed and stuff, it just has that feeling to it. Um. But yeah, like it's just when 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 Marilyn takes off the wig. Like I knew she was wearing a wig. Because I knew what you know, I knew what she looked like and everything. But yet, it's just never like discussed. Like was like was her and William Finley were they like on the run or something? Like <laughs> I, I think mean, it's obviously meant to just be a fashion choice.
1: I don't think there's I like guess. a narrative function.
2: Oh, I don't know. It was just weirdly fascinating to me, um, and also I was just really excited to see William Finley in this.
1: Yeah, of course.
2: He's my favorite weirdo guy. Of, of genre movies so
1: he's a weird guy and yeah
2: but i like that like when i see like when he pops up and stuff i'm like oh okay we're gonna, have to, <laughs> we're gonna have some fun um also i really like i'm sure it was fine i'm sure there was people like her parents were there but my god i feel like toby tortured <laughs> kyle richards in this movie Little Kyle Richards from Halloween, like this like yeah. this girl like didn't have enough to deal with a crocodile, but then she's got deal with Michael Myers <laughs> a few years later.
1: Yeah, again, it it pretty quickly puts her in a state of terror and then leaves her there for the remainder of the movie.
2: I was I was not happy about the dog scene, I will say that right now. Absolutely. I was like, no. And then seeing parts of it, I was like, no. So justice <laughs> for scuffy. Right. I was not happy about that. You know, <laughs> you 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 can you can eat Buck all you want, but you leave Scuffy alone. <laughs> I know that wasn't the character. I don't know that wasn't the dog's name in the movie, but that's the real dog. The right. names, the dog's real name. So, right.
1: Um, the William Finley character, and I haven't worked this out completely, but between William Finley and Judd. I have this working theory that Eaten Alive is largely about, like, impotence, men's inability to perform sexually and or just function as quote-unquote men. Uh, William Finley is clearly unable to sort of be the man that he is meant to be as a husband. Um, And so, and Judd, you know, and so he acts out Judd commits murders as a, as a stand in for his impotence. But it's, it's weird because this movie is one of Toby Hooper's like hornier movies. He didn't often deal with sexuality in his movies with the exception of like night terrors and life force and this that's kind of the only time that sexuality creeps into his movies and the the horniness of eaten alive is very skeezy and and sleazy because the whole movie is kind of skeevy and sleazy um so there is a degree of sort of demented sexuality that runs through the movie but i think Robert England's character Buck is sort of the only male in the movie that's performing sexually, almost overperforming. He exists to be like a put out to stud uh and threatens to, you know, rape a woman in the opening scene um whereas the other men are sort of emasculated for a better word.
2: Yeah, but I think I think uh Buck's aggressiveness, I think is sort of his way of like
1: compensating
2: yeah compensating for you know because i think if it was just him having sex because he was in love with somebody i don't know that that's a character like the way his character is portrayed here i don't know that he's a guy that would get there do you know what i mean okay like where he it's almost like he has to have some sort of conquest involved with the with the act itself right for it to be something that he wants to do. Okay. Um, Because like, for example, like, you know, obviously with in the opening with Clara, like he basically tries to force her into things that she doesn't want to do. Right. Doesn't get that, but he's like, but then he gets offered two women, which it, the way it sounds has never been something he's done before. Right. And like, so almost that's like a new conquest for him. And then, um, oh my God, I'm totally blanking on the girlfriend's name. Um, Lynette. Is that,
1: Oh Wait, no, shoot, on. me too. Uh, oh yes. my god, Lynette. it's Lynette. Lynette, yeah.
2: Thank you. Sorry. And then even with Lynette, who is underage, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, he's even like she's offering herself to him, like there's no resistance, but yet he's still a little forceful with her because mm-hmm. I think that there's like this part of him that has to compensate for something mm-hmm. because I think you know, and I think also too the crocodile is a reflection of it because they say that Buck was the one that got him, right? Right. Was that the story? Right. Yeah. That that Buck is the one that conquered the crocodile. Right. So he's a guy who obviously needs to conquer. And that could be also a reflection again, as we're coming out of something like Vietnam. Um, you know, he's a young guy. He might've been over there and now he's back here and he's trying to function within the normal expectations of everyday society here in the United States. And like, how does a guy who went over there into that kind of a war come back and function?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Like, you know, a lot of guys didn't function very well. Sure. And bucks kind could be a reflection of that in some ways. Um, but I'm going to tell you what, this is so crazy. Like, I wish I could have seen this movie before, like spending like 40 years, like, adoring and loving robert england because seeing horny robert england to me is just it's nothing i need i don't want that i don't like that at all it makes me very uncomfortable it's like it's like walking in on your dad or something it's like oh god no like oh and his little tidy whiteys and i was just like no this is robert england we're talking about here like so you're okay, okay with this.
1: child murdering robert england but not horny robert england
2: uh yeah exactly <laughs>
1: just want to understand he's not Robert where the lines are yeah
2: he's Freddie at that point like i'm not okay. looking at robert's face it's just it's so strange like because he's become like sort of this like almost in a lot of ways like patriarchal figure of like horror the sure. horror community sure. horror fandom and i'm just like oh man keep it in your pants dude like <laughs> so i obviously his is name is buck buck yeah i guess i guess i mean if <laughs> your name's buck what else are you gonna do
1: right exactly
2: be a truck driver
1: like
2: i don't know <laughs> i'm i'm bucking i'm down to drive a truck yeah it doesn't it doesn't really work as well
1: you could train ducks
2: he could train ducks um mm. and i like to pluck like a chicken he could be yeah. a chicken farmer
1: yeah you could watch right other, in and, he could watch other rechecks. people have sex and he could be buck the cuck
2: oh there you go <laughs> now you're getting really creative
1: yeah 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 we could do this all day.
2: Buck the cock. I'm going to make that shirt. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. He's that great in this a... movie
1: though. Um,
2: he really is. Was this, because I, I know this was super early this career, but was this like his first real film role?
1: I don't think so. Uh, but I know it's very early. Hold on. I'm looking it up. I have to scroll through 700 credits first. Buster and Billy is technically first. He's got a handful of fairly yeah, substantial like like a... parts. Uh okay. before Eatin' Alive. Because even in Stay Hungry, he's got a decent role in Stay Hungry. Like Hustle, which I just saw for the first time, he shows up at the end, he shoots Burt Reynolds, and that's it. Um
0: okay. but like
1: Buster and Billy and Stay Hungry, he's got, you know, decent sized roles and then Eatin' Alive, obviously. Um, he doesn't have another like big role really until uh fucking big Wednesday a couple years later.
2: Interesting, okay. Yeah, yeah I haven't seen uh Buster and Billy. I um, feel like Stay Hungry is something, but like I don't know because that was was that that's was Jeff Bridges, Bridges and Sally field. okay. And, okay, oh, I was like. So all right. Cause I was like, wait, that wasn't Bo Bridges. That no. was, I mean, okay. Um, that I feel like I have seen, but I think I was young.
1: It's the um, like, bodybuilding romance movie.
2: Yeah. 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 Cause I think yeah. because uh, everybody went through like an Arnold phase in yeah. the 80s where it was like, Conan was on repeat <laughs> and like, you'd find like these weird babies that he'd pop up in and like, Oh, I'm still um, in
1: my Arnold phase.
2: Who isn't? I mean, come <laughs> on. Um, how was Buster and Billy? Was that cool? Was it good?
1: Uh, yeah, it's decent. I mean, I I saw it a couple years ago, so it was interesting because he talked about it a lot. I feel like in the I can't remember if it was in the documentary or if it's on an episode of Postmortem that he did, but he talks about his process. I feel a like lot. That's
2: some... I feel like that's something he would talk with Mick about.
1: Okay. Yeah. Um. Yeah, it's it's decent, you know, as those movies go. It's like. Jan Michael Vincent, when he was still kind of engaged and giving a shit. And uh, Robert Englund plays like an albino who's trying to not be an albino. It's 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 worth checking out.
2: Interesting. All right.
1: Yeah. I'm looking up if it's streaming anywhere.
2: I like I like film recommendations.
1: Buster and Billy is not streaming anywhere, but you can rent it on Amazon. Oh, Yeah. We'll get you <laughs> always. <laughs> um, and it looks like a Blu-ray exists, but is maybe out of print. So never mind. Oh
2: yeah. Oh geez,
1: they don't want you to see this movie.
2: Oh, now I want to see it even more.
1: <laughs> exactly, the forbidden <laughs> fruit.
2: Yes, the forbidden fruit of Robert England. Oh, geez. <laughs> so complicated, those feelings.
1: Only Lynette knows for sure.
2: That's true. Um, that is true.
1: Yeah, it's cool to see. I forgot that it was Kyle Richards uh, under the porch in this movie because not only is she, you know, famous for being in Halloween and going on to, I think, be like one of the real housewives she's maybe my favorite part of like Halloween kills. Uh, yes. she's not in Halloween ends very much. I know she shows up for like a scene, but I think she's one of my favorite things in Halloween. Kills.
2: Sorry. Somebody just knocked on my door. Yeah. Apologies. No um, worries. Yeah. It's, it's funny. Cause I know she's talked about it like recently when she came back into the fold for Halloween. Mm-hmm. Um, how, um, like working on Halloween itself, like, traumatized her she never watched the movie like or she was at the premiere and i like, had to leave because she was like so traumatized by it wow and utah come on uh, out tell oh everyone gosh, that's sorry.
1: a tell everyone that's a crocodile
2: yeah it's a crocodile if you don't quiet down you're gonna get you utah i'm serious no
1: i'm not saying feed the dog to the crocodile i'm saying it's the crocodile that's barking
2: oh oh the crocodile bark i mean ours <laughs> is gonna sing so that's good good point um but yeah, I think she talked about like how like during you know the Halloween premiere she had to like leave because she was so freaked out and like only had recently really sat down and watched the movie. But to me, I'm like, it seems like making this movie would be way more traumatizing.
1: Definitely, because there's
2: like a even with even though it's an animatronic crocodile, uh, I believe created by Craig Reardon, mm. um, like that's still got to be pretty intense for like a little kid, and she's in like. This really confined space for like half the movie. Yeah. If not more so almost. Yeah. And like, and you have to have a scene where like she's watching a dog eating by a crocodile, and you're like, what? Like, even though it's fake and it's movie magic, still like when you're that little, can you process that? <laughs> but somehow Michael Myers was scarier. So that's gotta right. say something, I guess. That is
1: that is kind of weird. What do you yeah, think really of the uh what do you think of the score by Wayne Bell and Toby Hooper.
2: I liked it. It was really, again, it's, it was really weird and added to like this sort of aura that the movie has. Aura. Um, It was interesting. Cause I didn't realize aura. Is that our new era <laughs> era, era and aura? Um, because I didn't realize like that he did the, he did the score for this, um, which sort of puts him ahead of somebody like John. Well, no. Cause I think Carpenter did, whatchamacallit. I'm trying uh, Dark Star was right around this time, I think.
1: Uh, either way, it w- Dark Star is a couple years earlier, and he did do the music for that.
2: Yeah. Dark Star um, comes out the but, same year as
1: Texas Chainsaw.
2: Oh, okay. I couldn't remember if it was, I thought, for some reason, I thought it was, no, because it makes sense. Because then he did, whatchamacallit, before, uh, Assault of Precinct 13. Yeah. Before Halloween. Yeah. Okay. So that makes sense. So it wasn't exactly like the precedent had been set for directors to start doing their own scores. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of interesting to me that Toby was like, no, I want to do this. But I think that's also, again, showing how calculated he was being. Like, Mm. again, when you talk about like people saying how he was inept and this, you know, movies a mess and stuff like that. I'm like, yeah, but that score feels really like, intrinsic to the things as they're happening
0: mm-hmm.
2: in a way that really like heightens them you know and again it wasn't exactly like directors back then were all just like yeah i'm gonna make some music It wasn't like bob clark was like making black christmas and like yeah i'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna go do the score why not right um you know so it's it's that i thought was really fascinating and i liked it has it ever been like formally released
1: not that i know yeah
2: okay yeah maybe maybe it would be nice if
1: somebody could get in on that yeah it's like it's a weird like i would want it obviously as an artifact as a piece of like toby hooper history but i can't see myself really listening to it because like the texas chainsaw score it's very dissonant and discordant and it would just be upsetting to listen to
2: No, you put it you put it on outside your house on Halloween when trick or treaters come
1: and really mess with them. That would be the function of it. Yeah,
2: yeah, totally. It's funny (laughs) because, like, you know, I love the score for Gremlins, like that will always stick in my head. But there are so many moments of that movie that the score it's like the ring is like so disturbing to listen to, like because we have the I think it was was it Mondo that put it out years ago? Sure. I think it was Mondo. Um, and I remember like, oh, sweet, we've got Gremlins, I'm going to put this on. It was December, perfect. And like, you're hearing like all the fun stuff, and then you're like, <laughs> you're like and you're like, it's like cats are screaming at you in your house, and you're like, what is going on? And I still had cats, so it was even weirder. Um, and like, they're looking at me, I'm looking at them, we're both, we're all looking at the record player, like, I don't know what's going on right now. Um, but I actually kind of like, I like that kind of stuff. Like, I think it's like, I will always listen to the soundtrack. Like, yeah, I want to hear the de- 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 de part, but I also want to hear the cat screaming too. So I'm a weirdo.
1: <laughs> I put on the black Christmas score at one point and it uses like, it's the, the soundtrack also uh-huh. has like audio from the movie. I had to turn it off. Like it was upsetting to me. <laughs> it was like <laughs> I was alone in the house and I was like, this is scarier than it needs to be. I'm turning this off
2: you're like i'm alone in the house it's like a, <laughs> it's like a horror movie set up right exactly
1: there. it's terrible
2: and then billy calls you and he's just like <laughs> and you're like oh no that would have been perfect <laughs> if erica had called you like while she was out and was messing with you and you are like
1: oh, getting all billy terrifying. on you terrifying <laughs> um, toby hooper only wrote one more score for his movies and it was for texas chainsaw 2 I think it's the only other time he's credited as a composer on one of his movies.
2: Oh, interesting. Huh. Yeah. I wish he would have done it more. He has a very interesting approach. But again, I think it's, I I think it's kind of fascinating to me because I think that's, I think that's one of the things I always loved about John Carpenter too, is like how he was a guy who had like a vision, but also sort of this audio sensibility to him as well. And just showed you like how complete Like the creative process is like when you're creating a film, like it doesn't just end with what you see on on the screen. Like there's so many other things and like that help bring that vision, you know, enhance it and bring it to life and things like that. Um, So yeah, that would have been cool. if Toby would have been able to do that more.
1: Well, I don't based on the scores that he is credited with. I don't feel like his approach and maybe he has a different, more melodic sensibility than I'm aware of. But I do feel like his approach would have been wrong for like the subsequent projects. And part of that is No, I mean I wouldn't want
2: to listen to him do Salem's Lot.
1: Right, exactly. Like
2: But the Mangler, I mean
1: Maybe, yeah. yeah.
2: Let's have some fun. It's the Mangler.
1: It's hard not to associate some of his bigger movies with like their scores, because whether it's Salem's lot or poltergeist or life force or invaders from Mars. I mean, so many of those have like really memorable, iconic scores written by other people, obviously. And so it's hard yeah, for me heavy, to be like, a giant
2: oh, heavyweight talents. Yeah, right.
1: Exactly. Would Toby Hooper's weird soundscape approach have worked, you know, uh, Maybe if you put, like, if you played the eaten Alive, because I, I'm a big, I have a theory. I don't know how much I still believe this theory. But a couple of years ago, I was like, if you removed the Jerry Goldsmith score from Poltergeist, a lot fewer people would say it was directed by Spielberg. Um.
2: um yeah, I agree.
1: If you play, I wonder if you like played the eaten Alive. Soundtrack over Poltergeist would people be like, "Oh, this is a Toby Hooper movie."
2: How do we make that as a screening thing? How do we get Poltergeist <laughs> into a theater, but get the score for Eaten Alive?
1: I don't know. Yeah, we'll put but it it's on true. our to-do list.
2: Yeah. um
1: After we write gosh, the musical, like
2: so I love it. Or <laughs> yeah, now we get to like do like big Broadway numbers. Uh, What's this stuff? I swear to God, this dog today. There's so many people coming up and down our hallway. Oh, but yeah, I mean, like, I would never have wanted to see it, like, in his more mainstream that were, like, his sort of bigger things. But I think, like, in some of his more, like, offbeat yeah. things, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it works. Like, that's like, why I said The Mangler. Because, like, Mangler yeah. to me is, like, this weird little movie that I... Everything on my body says I should hate that movie, but I don't. I, I actually like there's, it a lot. There's
1: no part of you that should hate that movie. But yeah, for but, sure, you know, stuff like Toolbox Murders or Mortuary. Like, the, he definitely made movies that his approach to scoring would have... uh worked
2: yeah totally um but yeah i mean that's the thing it's like with something like poltergeist there's so much emotion in that music right that that sells it like you know there's parts of the movie i will always cry during because of and and it's a lot of it's because it's enhanced by that score yeah
0: yeah, yeah.
2: um you know but again it's like I, i think that just demonstrates like when you think like especially something like life force which is a movie that I've only recently come to, but I've watched it a few times. I, re- mm-hmm. I really like it. Um, and, but that, like, that score really, like, the movie is like, like, here. And if I can visualize it, it's like, you know, we're at like, you know, a six. And then the score comes in and you're like, right up. And, like, it's just, it enhances certain aspects of that movie so well. Yeah. That, like, I don't know it just sort of transports you in different ways um I don't know if that's even making sense and I'm like rambling at this point but there's just something to be said for appropriate music working in favor of material and tone and approach in mm-hmm. a director's vision as opposed to one that's just simply there to like fill in some gaps because mm-hmm. I feel like there's a lot of scores these days and there's a lot of amazing, you know, modern composers working these days, but there's a lot of times where I just feel like music just is sort of in certain modern horror movies just to sort of fill the void. I don't feel sure. like it's doing much to right. push what you're seeing on the screen. It's just there to sort of complement it without actually enhancing. Yeah, But I don't want to get any hate mail from horror fans, but you know, there's a, I mean, there's a lot of great. I mean, something like *Malignant*, like that score was working some overtime, which made that movie even like more banana fans than it sure. was. Sure. Sure.
1: Um, you was know, that Joe but even, that did that one.
2: Yeah, Joe's okay. good at that. Yeah. Um, but then there's like, and I don't, I don't say this. As a bad thing, but like something like Megan, like the score, not the, the fun songs that pop in it, but the score, it's there, it's good, but it's not doing much else.
0: Yeah. That makes and sense. And
2: I apologize to whoever that composer is, but um, I am sorry that if I was like, being a <laughs> jerk on that, but do you know what I mean? Like, I, I like, yeah. that's the thing. I don't really remember it. And Joe Bashar is like actually probably the king of creating like really good, um like modern scores that kind of mess with you because like obviously like he did insidious mm-hmm. and like from that opening credit titles card like you're just you're in like you're like oh shit we're doing this um yeah. you know he's worked with Juan a lot um and a lot of other a, a lot of other folks as well um i think he's even done both of the aquaman movies now too really which is kind of cool yeah um so i think his family's like royalty in like a different country weird yeah, I went to his. I was at his house once when we were shooting behind this, or we were shooting uh, interviews for Devil's Carnival. Okay, and it was really strange because it was like there was a lot of mannequins around the house, and oh, I was boy. like, "Oh my god!" I was like, "Does Joe to live here? What's happening?"
0: Oh, um,
2: yeah, um, he's so nice, though. He really is. He's he's genuinely a sweetheart of a person. But it was just like there's oh, a lot of mannequins looking at me right now. I'm just <laughs> Um, but yeah, it's, he's, I would say he's one of those guys. Him and like Bear McCreary. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, is it Johans, Johansson that yeah. he passed away? Yeah. Um, a few years ago, he was, man, yeah, he, he was, was awesome. great.
0: Yeah. Like sure. the stuff
2: that he did on freaking. I mean, Arrival and Mandy, mm-hmm. uh, there was something else that I really loved. Um, yeah, it's just like, there's something when you... There's 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 a lot of great composers working, but there's certain ones where you're just like, Oh yeah. When this guy's doing it, like disaster piece is another one.
1: Yes. And speaking
2: speaking of, (laughs) did you did you hear about the sequel that got announced a few weeks ago?
1: Just that there is one, yeah.
2: Yeah. (laughs) I'm (laughs) so excited to be on the outside for that one.
1: That's what you do when your follow up is not a hit.
2: Yeah. So you go, um, you go
1: back and do it. Follows too.
2: Yeah, yeah. Yes, you do. So, I hope it's good. I hope it's good. Obviously, uh, it has a great score though. It has a great score.
1: Love that score. That's kind of
2: yeah. Other than the opening scene and the score and just the dumb things that the characters do, the score is probably the thing that I remember the most about that movie. So yeah. But yeah, yeah a, I mean, I it's it would have been fun to see Toby branch out a little bit more. But I like the fact that I mean, it makes sense that he did Texas Chainsaw too because that just like seems like so perfect
1: yes and it's probably so. like the most melodic of all his scores even though it's not particularly melodic and is kind of like oh this is the sound you hear when you go crazy uh, yeah which is what that movie is about what most of his you know horror movies tend to be about is sort of like being pushed past the brink of madness um do you I, I
2: wanted to ask uh, maybe yeah. i'm reading into this do you feel like that was i mean obviously Creatives are always working out something through their art. But like, you know, obviously Toby was a very unusual character. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like this was like his way of working out some stuff that, like, even through all the interviews that he did over the years and things that we've heard, like and in insights that he shared? Do you feel like this was like his way of working out some stuff that he just never quite reconciled with? I mean because it, we are we are talking about quite a few movies that are dealing with like sort of mental health madness being pushed you
1: know yeah i I mean he he has he has he's a guy who by all accounts i never was lucky enough to meet him or talk to him but what that he was just like so quiet so nice so supportive like i've not heard anyone say anything bad about him ever personally and but i think he had you know like a lot of our favorite horror directors had like dark thoughts and was drawn to dark shit. Even his book, which I, we haven't talked about if we're going to do an episode on his book or not midnight movie, but it's fucking bananas. Like the, the stuff he came up with in that book is so weird and out there and insane. And it's like, yeah, it could only have come from Toby Hooper's brain. um, you know, what exactly he was working out or processing, I couldn't say. I think he just had a, some specific ideas about the function of horror or what horror could do for audiences. And I don't think he was interested in horror that, like, didn't fuck around. Like, I I, I don't think he was interested in, like, any tame bullshit. Um, He wanted his movies to go there. And for the most part, they do.
2: Yeah. And I think also too, especially during like this phase of his career, um, you know, it feels like he's really pushing in ways that we, you know, we don't see later. Like we don't see, like, I wouldn't, you know, watch if I was like some rando and watch Eaten Alive and be like, well, that's obviously the director of Poltergeist. Although there are some visuals yeah. in Eaten Alive that do feel very reflective of Poltergeist, but yeah. you know, the thing is that people kind of forget that, like, like uh, directors evolve. Like, it's not like mm-hmm. Wes Craven spent his entire career making *The Last House on the Left* movies,
0: right?
2: You know, and that's good. That's that you know, you want to grow and change and evolve as a creative person. Um, but I'm I'm just curious, like, at this point, like in his career, like, you know, dealing with all the bullshit that he had to deal with on *Texas Chainsaw*, you know, sort of still being on the outside of everything, you know, being in Texas and stuff. Like, if he was just like. Okay, although I think he might have moved to L.A. at this point. I can't remember. Uh, I don't know exactly when he yet.
1: moves to L.A., right? Obviously, the movie is shot in L.A., but I don't know if he's living there yet. Yeah, because
2: I yeah, cause I'd read like an interview that he did where they talked about how he wanted to actually shoot uh, most of the ex- exteriors for this in, um, I think it was Armadillo, Texas. But it was too expensive to travel so i'm like thinking to to myself well if you're already based in texas like i don't feel like it'd be that expensive so i'm almost wondering if he was you know he had some hype around him for texas chainsaw right and maybe that's when he started to transition over because i don't remember i forget which exactly which year he started to like get in with friedkin i feel like it was like after this
1: okay i i don't know i'd have to watch that uh interview with the two of them
2: yeah, I also read it somewhere too. Like I've I've been I, w- whenever we do this, I've been really trying to like pull different interviews and stuff. Yeah, just to kind of get like a bigger picture of who he was and everything.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, but I feel like I know it was pre-Salem's Lot that he met with Freakin', and that's when their friendship started. Yeah, so I don't know if it was like at this point or not. Um, but yeah, so I, I think that was like so I'm I'm guessing he may not have been still in Texas at this point if they were worried about like them having to go back to Texas to shoot. Right. Cause like, you know, if you're in a state like and it's your state, you know like you got you got friends, you got ways of making things work, right? Yeah. Um especially in the seventies, you know, kind of <laughs> shooting kind for of the hip as it was. Um but yeah, like I just this was to me really, really fascinating. And like I at the first twenty minutes I was like, okay, this is gonna be this is going to be a lot. And then I really sort of settled into it, but again, I was glad that it like crawled up under my skin like immediately, mm-hmm. um, and then just kept pushing and pushing and pushing, um, because it's been a, a really long time since I've had an experience with a film that does that.
1: Oh, that's great to hear. I'm I'm glad that yeah. this that the podcast gave you sort of the the excuse to finally check this movie out.
2: Yeah, totally. And that's the thing, like. I never understand people who are like, oh, I don't watch new movies or some people like I don't watch old movies. And like, I just don't understand saying you're somebody who likes movies, but you have zero sense of like discovery. Right. Like that just kind of blows my mind a little bit. Like, why? Why wouldn't you want to watch everything you possibly could? Like, I'm always like trying to like push and watch some new stuff. I mean, yeah, I'm a creature of heaven. I watch like some of the same movies like hundreds of times, but (laughs) you know, if you're not trying to change your perspectives at all like are you really a film fan i don't know
1: <laughs> um well thank you everybody for listening to us talk about this movie if you haven't seen it it's streaming a lot of places it's streaming on shutter it's streaming on peacock i think it's on tubi it's all over the place so it's pretty easy i think to it's see. on
2: arrow too yeah i think it's okay. on arrow too. arrow yeah. did
1: put out the blu-ray so it makes sense that it would be on arrow um we didn't even talk about the lighting well whatever okay so it's pretty easy to see <laughs> You should absolutely check it out. Um, we will hopefully be, be back next month. Next month it gets a little crazy because of all of the uh, uh, like year end best of stuff that we both have to watch. Skinum rink for, but we will be back to talk Salem's Lot very soon, which I know Heather's very excited oh, about. How
2: about this? <laughs> okay, because also one like everybody always does like their end of year like before the year actually ends. Yeah. So like. Why don't we plan to do our at year end like that first, like release that the first week of January? That's because usually you know when we do
1: it. it. Yeah, like the yeah, because you, be, yeah, you know,
2: yeah, because you know, be a really great Christmas present is getting to talk about Salem Slot. All right,
1: <laughs> we'll slot everybody. that into December.
2: Okay, that makes me happy. <laughs> I need nothing else, Santa. Thank you.
1: <laughs> All right, thank you everybody for listening, and we will talk to you soon. Thanks, Heather.
2: Thanks,
0: Patrick.